Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Crazy Money, the best podcast nobody listens to. <laughs> That's how a friend of mine with a much bigger podcast recently described my show. And you know what? It makes me proud. Except nobody doesn't listen to it. Nobody is the wrong description. It is a strong and mighty listener base of curious, smart, fun people with good hair and strong personalities and deep voices. The dudes, anyway. The dudes. Anyway, thank you for listening. I've got a great guest to share with you today. His name is Will Vogt. Will is a photographer with a front row seat to the American upper class. He was raised on Philadelphia's main line, attended boarding school, and spent lots of time in the Tony Enclave of Watch Hill, Rhode Island. Watch Hill, Rhode Island, everybody. That's where we're going. That's where his family summered back in the 70s and 80s, and it's where he still summers today. In fact, that's where he spoke to me from. That's from which he spoke to me. The reason we talked is because he's got a new collection of photography called These Americans, which showcases the decades of intimate snapshots he took of his social circle and I learned of this on Instagram. I followed the Vulture, the entertainment news site Vulture. And before I even knew what I was looking at, I was like, I want to find out more. I saw these pictures, these photos that Will had taken of young people from the 80s enjoying themselves in what looked like Fitzgeraldian, Fitzgeraldian, F. Scott Fitzgeraldian, which we'll get to in a minute, Blender. And I was like, who is this? What is this all about? The Vulture describes his work as such. Vote depicts the wealthy at leisure with their guard down. And indeed, Will has captured a very rare, candid, and unselfconscious picture of the American upper class doing their thing, which in a few cases is cocaine. <laughs> Note uh, that he doesn't seem to have taken his camera to his family or friend's place of work. And so these are pictures of the wealthy on vacation at each other's weddings uh, on their summer trips, sometimes hunting in South Texas, etc. And since these photos were taken mostly in the 1980s, it's highly appropriate that Jay McInerney, the author of Bright Lights, Big City, composed the introduction. He wrote that vote is, quote, documenting the world of the descendants of those whom F. Scott Fitzgerald wrote about, and he is clearly a member of this tribe, albeit a self-aware and observant one. What I found interesting about these photos was that, yes, these are photos of rich people, but they're also photos of people, uh, a certain kind of person living a certain kind of lifestyle in a very specific era that depicts a style of living, a lifestyle that Ralph Lauren tried to tap into in the 80s, that the preppy handbook documented, but this was the actual thing. And... The people aren't necessarily thinking about their privilege or how fortunate they are. They're just living their lives among their friends and family, trying to do the best job they can, given what they've been given. And it's a really interesting collection of photography. I hope you'll take a second to click on the link in the show notes where you can go to Will's website and see more of the photos and potentially buy a copy of the book for yourself. This, my friends, is Will Vote. So tell me about Watch Hill, Rhode Island, where you are today. Yeah, it's an interesting community. Before the turn of the century, it was a town of large hotels. that They had these great, huge uh, wood wooden hotels, and they used to bring people up Long Island Sound from New York and other places because you couldn't drive up here. You know, the, the bridge didn't cross the Connecticut River. So they had these, they had been these big paddle wheelers, and it was a little town with a beach, and... 
at these big hotels. And around the turn of the century, uh, most of the hotels went away. They either burned down or they knocked down. And that era kind of changed. And then they started to build what they call these shingle cottages, which yep. were large wooden shingle houses that had no heat or air conditioning. Then the community kind of changed from a hotel community to, to one of houses and uh, really hasn't changed. It's changed some, but we have a, you know, an ice cream place down in the village and a merry-go-round. And, and we have a really a, a spiffy hotel now. If I look to the left, I'm looking at Taylor Swift's house right there. She, she's a neighbor, which was kind of shocking. <laughs> My grandparents uh, came up and they rented the house that we own in 1947 they bought it in 1948. So family's yep. been here ever since. Now, if you've ever been to Newport or for those listeners who've ever been to Newport, Rhode Island, you hear the uh, term cottage and then you look yep. at a, you know, a 50,000 square foot home. Yes. Watch Hill's not quite Newport, but it's pretty nice. darn nice. Right. Yeah. We, we call it uh, kind of the, the poor man's Newport kind of facetiously, <laughs> but it, there's definitely, there's less restaurants and less bars and less places to stay and, and less tourists. And Rhode Island is a, a funny little state and we're glad to be part of it. And, and I have a lot of summer friends that I grew up with that I'm still friends with. A lot of them are in the book. My kids grew up here and they have lots of friends. My son works down at the beach every day and, and it's, it's, a, it's a great place. It really is. Where did you spend the school year as a child? Well, I started out in Philadelphia. We grew up in a place called Haverford, which is part of the main line. It's, you know, a suburb of Philadelphia. And, and I went to went to school right down the street at Haverford School. Haverford School and Haverford College are kind of across the street from each other. And we actually grew up on College Avenue. And that was um, was a pretty nice place to grow up. It was a great suburb. And we had access to Philadelphia. You could get on the train and go down there when you're a kid and go hear music. And, and so it was good. So Mainline Philadelphia and Watch Hill, what business yeah. were, were the Vote family ancestors in that brought you to this, this upbringing? Well, we had a pretty interesting family. The, the, my father was from Philadelphia, and he was an only child of very modest means, got a, a long way in life because of his athletic abilities. He was a great basketball player, great tennis, you know, an all-star amateur tennis player in the 40s and 50s. And he went from, from public school to Penn Charter Academy to the Hill School, where I went to Princeton, where he played number one on the, on the Princeton tennis, and he played varsity basketball there. And he met my mother, who was, was a little higher class. Her grandfather had actually been a very legendary South Texas rancher, and her mother was the youngest of, of his children, and she married a man from Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And they moved to Philadelphia and my, my mother and her brother were raised, raised there. So it was, it was kind of an interesting family. My parents, they were well off and they, they knew a lot of the people that were well off in Philadelphia. But uh, my mother was not a name brand like the, the Scots or the Wideners or, you know, people like that. Not somebody that people recognized as, oh, well, they're, you know, very wealthy. And my father, as I said, was very successful in athletics. And then he, he did real estate, his father had a real estate office, which he continued on with. And later he built some uh, houses and then uh, garden apartments out in further out in the suburbs. But it was very interested in sports. That was his thing. All right. So you told me before we started recording that you're 71 years old. So that means you grew up in the late 50s and 60s, right? 
What happened That's to you? Correct. What happened to you three days after your 16th birthday? Well, uh, some friends of mine and I, we, we had been, uh, been interested in Jimi Hendrix the year before that summer was when the Yellow Album Mario Experience came out. And we were pretty taken by Hendrix. And I was going to boarding school at that time, but we were home in March. And the Jimi Hendrix Experience was playing at the Arena Theater in Philadelphia, which was a place that normally had roller derby, wrestling, stuff <laughs> in it. And, and 69th Street in Philadelphia was, a, I was accustomed to going to downtown, but this was a little little uh, edgier place. And the three of us got on the, the P&W, which was the little train. And we went down to 69th Street and we got to the venue and there were people with long hair. There was marijuana smoke in the air. And it was, it was a triple build. And there was a, a band open was Woody's Truck Stop, which was Todd Rundgren's first band, which was kind of interesting. And then they had a band called the, the Soft Machine and they had a light show. They were an English band and they had a light show. And then Jimi Hendrix came out and did the Jimi Hendrix thing. And it was pretty, uh, pretty amazing for a quite impressionable or three impressionable 16 year olds. And I came home thinking, hmm, a lot of stuff mother and dad didn't tell me about yet. <laughs> <laughs> and I would preface that by saying that I was the oldest of three boys. So I did not have older brothers to you know, take you around and tell you this is what you ought to do or this is cool. And I kind of had to learn this on my own to a large degree. So yeah, it was quite an eye opener and it really started me on a real, real love of music and, and going to see, I saw some amazing shows in those days and it was great. You said mother and dad didn't teach you about that. Were they society people? Did they have lots of parties at the house where, where you would be upstairs in the, in the nursery, just listening to the noise coming from the ballroom below? Right. You know, it wasn't quite that fancy and we didn't have a ballroom, but there was some stuff going on. But really, mother and dad really wanted the kids involved. We were really, when the adults came, that we were supposed to come down and, and be part of it. You know, obviously not when you were a toddler or something, but, you know, we ate dinner to, together every night at the, at the table together. And, and they were, were different uh, than other parents that I knew where you were, uh, the kids were supposed to be off somewhere when the parents were having a good time, but we were, yeah. we were really part of the action. I think in the history that I'm familiar with, I don't think there was ever as much of a division between what the parents were interested in and what the kids were interested in. I'm talking about the years 1967 to 70. I mean, I think the music and the culture, there was such a, such a gap there. It, it was really, and it was, I think it was hard for mother and dad and all parents and what their interests were, were very different than what ours were. And I can remember I, I came home, I was a, a real Bob Dylan fan. And I came home from boarding school and I sat mother and dad down in the den. And we listened to all four sides of Blonde on Blonde, which was pretty aggressive, I think. And I said, well, what do you think? This is, this is my favorite kind of music. And I'm, I'm crazy about this guy. And they were like, nah, nah. <laughs> Uh, kudos yeah. to them for sitting through four sides that's pretty cool yeah that was cool they tried and it was that guy can't sing and and there are too many words in those songs and so i think after that i think we agreed to disagree about music for a while but how'd you get into photography i'll start with my mother you know, they got married in 1950 and i have i have my mother's photo archive and she started taking pictures in 1952 and I was the first child, so I was sort of the first star of the pictures. 
she took pictures of family. She took pictures of her friends. And some of it's a little racy. Some, some trips that they went on, some peoples. And the thing that was, I think, more interesting is that she then, she really did something with these pictures. And she put them in albums. And she really curated this archive. And I can remember going in the, into the den and taking the books out and looking at them. And she also had family photographs from her Texas family. She had this green strong box that she kept pictures in. And every once in a while, she would get out and show you. Show you. So I think this really, really came from her. And so I had somewhat of an interest and I was taking a few pictures. But really, the kind of the next thing that happened is that when I was in ninth grade, I was 14. I, w- I went to boarding school. I went to the Hill School, which is in Potsdam, Pennsylvania. And boarding school, I've had two kids that both have now graduated from boarding school. And boarding school is a pretty gentle place these days. I mean, there's a lot of uh, people looking out for you and making sure everybody behaves themselves. And it's nice to everybody. In 1966 in Potsdam, Pennsylvania, not so much. No, the, the, no. In what way? Come on, was it a rough place? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Boys, yeah. boys school, yeah. boys town. All, all boys, all boys, and the and the big kids picked on the little kids. And for your freshman year, you had to wear a beanie for the first semester. <laughs> a little weird little hat. If we beat Lawrenceville in in the big game, you got to take the beanie off early. But other than that, you had to wear. And I believe it or not, when I arrived at the Hill School in 1966, I was five foot two and I weighed 93 pounds. All I wanted to do was weigh a hundred pounds. I used to stuff myself at every meal. So I had been fairly popular at day school, but when I got there looking like that, I was at the bottom of the food chain and, (laughs) and and was apt to stay there for a long time. So sports were definitely out. I wasn't, wasn't going to make any mark in that way. So I kind of gravitated to the newspaper And I started writing some articles and then I started taking some photos for them. And then a a really interesting guy that I'm, I'm still friends to, to this day, he was one year ahead of me and he was more of an outcast than I was, which was hard to believe, but he taught me how to do darkroom. And uh, so I started developing pictures and, and I think they talk about safe space now. I don't think that term had been invented yet, but that really was for me was a place where you could go and you could get away from people and you could mess with these photographs. And it was one kind of pleasant space for me. And it got better, you know, as you grew up and you got a little bigger and you, you didn't meet some friends. And, and I, I also fell in the, under the influence of a, of a teacher there named Crawford Blagden, who was quite unusual. He was much closer to our age than any of the rest of the teachers. Most of the rest of the teachers were old, grumpy old guys. And Crawford was cool, and he turned me on to F. Scott Fitzgerald, which became a big, big part of my life. Fitzgerald, and and he took us to concerts. He used to run us down to Philadelphia to go go see concerts, and he turned me on to Robert Frank. And so there was was maybe just one bright light in this sort of dark, dark place. And I don't know if you've ever been to Pottstown, Pennsylvania, but there's not, you know, it's an old failed mill town and it still hasn't come back. I went for my 50th reunion recently and it's, it was rough, man. I've been to Wilkes Bar. It's not, it's not a tourist destination. No, not at all. Not even close. So in today's world, photography is casual. Photography is shared primarily on social media, Instagram, et cetera. When I was a kid and, and maybe when you were, you know, a teenager, Photography was shared oftentimes 
through slideshows. You get your slides of your vacation to Hawaii together and you'd invite everybody over and you'd force them to watch your, your slideshow. Mm-hmm. What makes a boring photo and what makes a compelling photograph? I think a good editor is, is always, always, always helpful <laughs> is not show 25 of the same picture and cut the ones out that are out of focus and, and where you can see the guy's thumb. That was, that was my father. He never took a picture that his thumb wasn't in. And I think that really, I'll take that question and kind of go in a little different direction with it. That I think that that was really the difference between then and now that they say that, that in 2023, that there's going to be 1.8 trillion pictures taken in the world. Mm. And every guy that's got one of these thinks he's a photographer and takes pictures. And most of them of the 1.8 trillion, I don't think are going to be too good. And most people never see them. But if you go back to the 60s and 70s and 80s, even when these pictures were taken, if you wanted to be a photographer, you had to put a lot more effort in than that. And you had to carry a camera around and you had to do something with it and, and develop the film and print, get the pictures printed and then do something with them. So it was really a different, different world. And I, I think that's part of what I think makes these pictures in the book pretty special and has sparked some interest in some different people to, to see them. Yeah. And we're here to talk about the book, these Americans, and that's how I learned of you. And what I saw was a post on Instagram from Vulture, the, the news mm-hmm. society culture publication. And I saw one of these, these photograph of these three look like late teenage boys where two of them were wearing Lacoste shirts, exactly like the one I'm wearing right now. Mm -hmm. I was like, I don't know what that is, but I want to find out more about that photo. And I don't know why it, well, I mean, I guess I could say it caught my eye because there's some sense of nostalgia or I saw some element of the culture from, I don't know, 1978 that seemed to resonate with me and it just grabbed me. So tell me about, how the book came about and what your goals are for it and, and what you think it captures. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll, I'll tell you the the story I think is pretty interesting. So I've been taking pictures and I'll, I'll backtrack just a little bit. So I've been taking all these pictures and I was putting them in albums. So I had piles and piles of albums. And so when people, unlike today where people take a picture and they put it on their social media, there was no real delivery method in those days that you took them. And then people would say, well, I never see any of these pictures. What do you do with all of them? Well, <laughs> right. I, cur- I curated this, these huge piles of albums. And I used to do them kind of on an annual basis. And I would put whatever the best ones were in there. And you could flip through them. And people, when they'd come visit, they'd say, well, let, let's look at some albums. And well, I got to about 2000. And I realized that the albums were falling apart. They were kind of going and the pictures were starting. So then... This was right when digital stuff was starting to break. So then I pulled all the pictures out of the albums and which I think I got tennis elbow. I mean, that was quite a job in itself. And then I sent them off to the desert and I, and I got them all digitized. So then I had this giant digital library and I figured out after a while, really, and this is kind of the modern equivalent of the slideshow you were talking about is that you can keep them in on your computer on your Mac computer, and then you can fire them up to the TV. And so mm-hmm. I would just play these loops of pictures all day long. You know, when people come visit, then that would be over the bar and have a big TV and it would do that. So that was kind of as far as I had gone. And I had had a few shows kind of local. I had a couple of shows in Corpus Christi and in Rhode Island. But I was, you know, I was a 60 some year old guy who'd taken a lot of pictures and, and 
who knew what, what it was all about. Well, then I had my lucky moment. So they, at the, I was in Corpus Christi where we live and I had been involved with the art museum there, the art museum of South Texas and great place. And I'd been the chair once and been on the board for a long time. And, you know, as museums do, they had a Thursday night opening where you can go down and, and look at a few things and eat a couple slices of rubber cheese and some, you know, bad wine and do that thing. And so I went and I met, I can remember this, and this was six years ago. So I, I walked up into the upper gallery and I saw these three really large photographs of people. And I mean, I'm almost fell over. I was so stunned by the pictures, how great they were. So I said to the, to the director, who took those pictures? And he said, well, it's Jennifer. I said, Jennifer, who? He said, well, it's Jennifer who's right over there. And it turns out that Jennifer was teaching. She's the head of the photography department at the local university, right down the street from where we live. So I went over and we struck up a conversation and I told her sort of my sad tale. I've been doing this for a long time. I don't know where I am in the world. And she said, well, well, hell, I'll, I'll come over to your house and have a look at some of your stuff and I'll, I'll tell you what I think. So a couple of weeks later, she came over and looked at some stuff and she said, okay, yeah, you maybe, maybe you got something. And she said, well, now give me a hard drive and put, Every photograph you've taken that you think is any good, plus maybe a couple thousand of the last photos you've taken in the last year or so. So I loaded up a hard drive with about 4,000 images on it, and I put it in the mailbox, and she picked it up. And a week or two later, she called me, and she said, you have taken at least one world-class photograph that any photographer would be just dying to have taken. I said, really, which one? I was like, that one? And I had no idea. So was it this it's one? Not, no, it's not in the book. These are, these are modern pictures. So that started on a process. And so we started to work together. She agreed to take me on. And so we spent about two and a half years basically working on my modern stuff, stuff that I'd taken within the last four or five years. And we were printing these very large these tableaus, these 30 by 40 big pictures of people. And it was really fun. And I, I did some more shows and I was selling a few pictures and it was kind of fun. And then three and a half years ago, she won a Rauschenberg fellowship. So she got to go to Rauschenberg's place. I think it's out it's in Tampa or St. Pete. She was going off for two months. So she said, give me all of your pictures now. I'm going to have some time. I'd like to, to see what we've really got here. So I gave her this hard drive, had 70,000 images on it. Oh, my God. Yeah. So she went off. She was gone for two months, and I was then it was over Christmas. I wasn't around. So probably about three months later, we got together, and I said, I thought about it. I said, I'm kind of a little intimidated about this meeting because you've seen every picture I've taken since 1968. You, you probably know more about me than, than my wife and kids do. And she was like, Oh, yeah. Yeah. This has been pretty, pretty <laughs> interesting. So she said again, she said, you've got something that nobody has. And what, what saying. is that? What is that thing? The pictures that are in the book. She said, these pictures from the 80s and or this general time period, she said, nobody has stuff like that. You had fantastic access. 
And the, the 80s is a, a generation, you know, a decade that people are interested in now. And she said, I believe this could be a really, really successful book if you'd like to do it. And I was like, okay. So she said, before we go move forward, I want to, I want to bounce this off about four or five other photographers because I'm, I'm going to put together a file of about a thousand images and I'm going to, I'm going to just send them out and just see what kind of feedback, just make sure that I'm not seeing something here. That's not here. I think that was January. Then in March, she came back and she said, the feedback's really good. I'd really like to do this. I'm going to get another editor to help me and let's go. And I was like, well, okay. And meanwhile, COVID comes around. So I have a lot less to do than I, as, as we all did. And so after a while, she presents me with this laundry list and she says, I need these negatives for these 200 pictures. And I had pretty good files. I mean, I knew where stuff was and I had things in boxes, but to pick out, find 200 out of 70,000 was, uh, was a bit of a treasure hunt. So that began this, this look around to try and assemble these photos. Now, you might just say that these are, you know, photos of your family and friends. Yes. How would an outsider at arm's length describe what this treasure was that she found, that Jennifer found? Well, I think that it's a depiction of, of probably people, outsiders would think of a certain group of people and type of people. And, you know, obviously a group of people that people are interested in. And I think that you see them doing things that you did in the 80s. I, I believe that the, the times were a little freer, that nobody else was taking your picture other than me. And it wasn't going to go on my Instagram tomorrow. Yeah, so I think people were, were probably a little freer about what they did. And, and you know, you were around in the 80s. The 80s was, was, a, was a carefree time compared to today. Hey, everybody, we'll be right back with Will Vote in just a second. I want to take this opportunity to ask you to click on the link in the show notes and subscribe to my Substack, Money and the Meaning of Life. What is a Substack? It is a platform by which you register to receive emails from me. I'm sending these out every two weeks, and they are essays on, you guessed it, money and the meaning of life. I try to make them fun, funny, uh, insightful, thought-provoking, and worthy of sharing. Speaking of which, I am equally as grateful to those of you who share my work with your friends, family, and social networks as to those who register as paying subscribers to the Substack. The money helps subsidize the production of crazy money, and I do appreciate it, but I appreciate every bit as much the moral support of those of you who listen, share, and talk about the podcast and the Substack with your friends. So click on that link in the show notes and check out my Substack, Money and the Meaning of Life. Back to Will Vote. The photos in the book seem to be mostly taken at social occasions. Yes. At, at uh, hunting parties in South Texas, at uh, gatherings in, in Watch Hill, and weddings, maybe some in Europe, and gatherings yep. in pretty neat places. And this is the 1% of the 1% or the 10% of the 1%. These are very wealthy society people whose lives are not generally, they don't invite the press in to these kinds of gatherings. And certainly the intimacy of these photographs, you got people doing a lot of drinking, some naked yeah. people in there, got some people doing yep. some cocaine and smoking a little mm -hmm. weed, but also candid shots of, for example, somebody you may be related to who has fantastic hair lounging on a boat, wearing a pair of Wayfarers talking on a cell phone, the kind that Gordon Gecko was talking on the beach in the Hamptons and in, in Wall Street, like it could be straight out of a Ralph Lauren ad. They certainly capture 
a time and a place of a certain group of people with great degree of intimacy. Yes. And, you know, I'll even go one step further. So Jay McInerney, the author, uh, most, most well-known for Bright Lights, Big City, wrote the introduction to the book. Why is he the perfect person to write this introduction? Well, I think my pitch to him, and I would describe us as acquaintances. We share some certain interests, and I have two good friends that know him well better than I do. And I'm an admirer of his work, and I thought if the book is primarily set in the 80s, and the interesting thing is if there's one year that has more pictures than any other, it's 1984, which is the year the Bright Lights Big City came out. So oh, I, thought, yeah. I thought that this was just a perfect match. And we share, as he says, an interest in F. F. Scott Fitzgerald. And so we were, had a connection for that reason. And I, I know a, a guy in the book business that knows him very well. And I know a lady that works for him. So I started out probably when we, we found the publisher in September. So I started out in, in October making these a PDF to show. And so I got that in his hands. And there was a lot of back and forth, a little a lot of mystery. And well, he said through his people, he said, well, I don't know anything about photography. I don't write about photography. I was, so I came back and I said, but you know, the eighties, I want you to write about the eighties. So there was quite a long time of mystery, whether he was going to do it or not. And we finally got really to the deadline. We wanted to publish in time. The book had to be printed because we wanted to launch the book at, at Photo London in, in May in, in London, which we did. So we were up against. And so I got a, a call from one of the intermediaries and said that Jay will do it. He's interested in it now and he'll call you. So he called me and we had a very nice conversation. He said, how long do I have? I said, you have little less than two weeks. This was a Thursday. I said, I have to have it a week from Tuesday. That's the last, that's the last day. He said, okay, well, I think I can do it. That whole next week, every day, the editors say, have you heard from Jay? The publishers say, have you heard from Jay? I'd say, no, oh, not a word, not a word. So finally, the Sunday before the Tuesday, I got an email from him just kind of fact-checking a couple things on Tuesday of the deadline, I was, I was on my way. I was in a, in a car going to meet some people on a shoot. And at about five o'clock, I got an email from him that said, I hope this, I hope this works for you. And it was the text. And I almost, I say now I burst into tears, maybe not burst into tears, but I definitely, I mean, it was one because it was so well-written. I, I just think he just nailed it. And I mean, I'm, I'm an English major and I think I can write a little bit. I can write better than the average person can. But when you see somebody and, you, and you're a great writer, I, I think your stuff oh, is thank you. I appreciate is it. Fantastic. You really, really are terrific. And but but Jay, he's operating at some very higher level than the average person. And I was so pleased that he uh, that he came through for me. And, and I'm, I'm really in his debt and he knows that and it's super cool that you know i went back and actually read bright lights big city and the good life i think mm -hmm. and it's interesting because he writes about he described your subjects as the descendants of fitzgerald subjects basically aka the american plutocracy and that's what he writes about that's his subject matter now whether or not you would consider the characters of of Wall Street to be, uh, or in the publishing industry in New York, in Manhattan in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s to be the plutocracy or not, is really not blue bloods, but they're wealthy, they're professional, 
they're ambitious, they have all those aspects. So he knows of what he speaks. He's passionate about this. And your shared passion for Fitzgerald is not coincidental here, right? I mean, the subjects of your photography would would be the modern equivalents of Gatsby's party guests, yeah. right? That's Tom Buchanan. Yeah. Right. So how has the book been received? I mean, it's probably the worst year ever to publish a book that you want to say celebrate or exposes the most affluent people in the most affluent country on earth. How are people accepting that work? It's really been pretty good. I I knew that I could sell a lot of copies to people that I knew who were in the book and, you know, sort of, or one, some degree of separation, but I think surprisingly, the general public, I mean, I've got really very good press. Ingen Vulture was great. Jody Kwan, who was, the, who was the New York Magazine photo editor, she, through some fluke, they got the book in her hand and she loved it or loves it. I mean, it was just a miracle that when we, when we had a Zoom, she said, do you know how many of these submissions I get in a day? She said, hundreds. <laughs> and she said, I don't know. For some reason, I clicked on the email, looked at the book, and I'm fascinated by this. So the book has been selling on Amazon. We're in the category of, of photo books that I've been number one some days or in the, in the top five. I mean, I've been beating uh, Sir Paul in his book, which, you know, makes me, makes me kind of happy. <laughs> no, no disrespect to Sir Paul, but so it's a little hard to tell, but I think that the editors were always very confident that there was going to be an interest and a market for this beyond my little world. And you never know, but I think it, it so far it, it has proven to be that, which is, is pretty cool. Now there's no captions in the book. These are highly intimate photos. So I can understand why people don't want these showing up on Facebook with themselves tagged in it or on their LinkedIn. Yeah. So, and we agreed that you, we wouldn't talk about specific people identity in the photos, but I wonder if you can just offer me a little bit of context on some of the specific ones, which is first of all, the three boys leaning against the car, two of which were in, in Lacoste, where were they going? You don't have to use names or schools, but like yeah. what was happening there? Were the guy going on a trip and you can see, by the way, it's hard to describe photography just using one's voice, but you can see station wagons in the back. Yes. Like, you, like yeah. that photo could be from today if it weren't mm-hmm. for the cars you see in the, in the picture. Yeah. Uh, actually, I can tell you a lot about that one. That's my little brother in the middle. And that was two of two family friends. And we were uh, on spring break in, in Boca Grande, Florida. I don't know if you've ever been there or not. But uh, and that was the we used to go down there, our family and a lot of different other families. And that was I think that was moving day. I think people were getting ready to go. I'm pretty sure from mm. that picture. So you would so, drive yeah. down from Philadelphia all the way to Boca Grande? No, no, we didn't. We didn't. We would we would fly, but I don't think that was our car. Oh, okay. It certainly wasn't. It, it could have been our rental car, but I don't think so. I think that was maybe somebody else's car they were leaning up against. What but, year would that have been? My guess it would be in the in the early 80s, somewhere between 80 and 85. Again, it could be 84 again, kind of the magic year. But yeah. So there's another one I keep coming back to is one of the images that really caught my eye. And it's a businessman, middle-aged businessman asleep on what appears to be a private plane. His head is back and his mouth is open. So you can almost hear him snoring. So, and then there's a person next to him reading, I think the health section of the Philadelphia Inquirer. And then you can barely see in the back, right? And by the way, it's, it's also, there's like luggage and stuff cramped into this, this small plane, right? So 
who knows what that is or where they're headed, but you can see a can of Pringles. And I wouldn't have even noticed what appears to be a child in the back. It only caught my eye because there's this can of Pringles. And so my eye kept going further. And I was like, oh, I think there's a kid back there. So this Mm -hmm. is a kid flying with parents, maybe. What can you tell us about that photograph? Well, my father was never a stranger to a good nap whenever he could catch one. (laughs) (laughs) That's about what I could say. Is that a business trip? Is that a family trip? That was a family. That was a family trip. I believe I'm, I'm not sure, you know, a a lot of this is lost in the haze of time, but I believe that was the family going from one place to another. Now, how old would you have been when you took that photo? I would have been probably forties or fifties. Oh, okay. How old's your dad in that photo? Well, he was probably about seven. He was in his seventies, I think. And I was probably in my, in my fifties, roughly, that would be about the spread. What I found interesting about that was where are the kids in all these photos, right? And you said earlier that your parents, as good parents do, they bring you down, they they have you mix with the other adults, they try to socialize you and introduce you to their family, friends, and all that kind of stuff, which we do our very best to do as well. But it made me wonder where are the kids. And then at the end, there's this closer to the end of the book, there's this photo of I think uh, three girls and a boy or two boys up in, yeah. in, in and you can almost hear the party going on downstairs as the kids are upstairs, kind of in uh half dressy clothes. One kid I think as a Dr. Pepper or something like that. Mm-hmm. Where were the kids in in these photos? Were they around? Were they on the trips? They just didn't make the cut, or did yeah, was it easier to take photos of your friends than it is to take photos of their kids? That's certainly a yeah. understandable thing. I think we have to go back to the, to the beginning a little bit on that, that, that I didn't choose any of the photographs at all. Right. The two editors chose them. So their mission was to try and choose them because of what the photo uh, content was that they didn't know, Oh, well, that was Paul's wedding, you know, or <laughs> right, you know, so, right. so that was, and, and then there was a lot, there was over a year spent on the sequence, which again, was way above my pay grade that, that I didn't even know when they kept saying, well, we're working on the sequence. We're working on the sequence. And even when I first saw it, I some of it was really lost. I mean, I mean there, there's obvious some of the pictures that go together because of the colors and the things. There's some obvious ones. But then I think when you talk about that picture, that that comes right after the picture of the adults that have uh, just been skinny dipping. And uh, so <laughs> yeah. I think that there's definitely a play between them them and the kids in the next picture, as, as I see it anyway, as really right at the very end. Well, speaking of sequencing, I had another question around that. There's there's this image of what appear to be oil fires from this one mm-hmm. from your work in Texas. And they yes. they pop up yeah. periodically almost as a motif yeah. as to take us back to like this very earthy elemental thing that's a very it's it's a high contrast between the party photos. Yes. Yes. And, and I will, I will say that I was quite surprised when the book, basically the main part of the book starts with a, one of those pictures. And I was kind of a head scratcher to me, but I've had several people tell me that they really thought that that was, you know, such an interesting photograph and such an interesting way to start the book. Silly me, I just take them. I, I don't know what they all mean or how they should be put together, but I think you're right. I think they're a good kind of change of pace from we had another another publisher lined up and they wanted to take the book, but they wanted to totally rearrange it. And they wanted to basically have all just sensational pictures. 
because there's a lot more that, that are a lot racier than the ones that are in there. And we really didn't want to do that. That wasn't, wasn't the idea. And I, I think, I think you've caught the right sort of thread that there are some in there that are totally different than the rest. And, I, and there, there's a real method to that madness. What do South Texas and Watch Hill, Rhode Island have in common? <laughs> well, not a lot, really. <laughs> I mean, I, I, what it has in common is it, it probably has nothing in common. That I really, to me, the world is a great large place and it's, it's really fun to have friends from different, different places and different backgrounds. I, I mean, you go around now in your work and I'm sure you really enjoy the different places and, and people are different. And I really am, had, had the luxury of having really two fairly different sets of friends, mm. the people that I, I hang around with in South Texas part of the year, most of the year. And then the people in Rhode Island are really a different group. And, and I see in some places, and I think some people are, are guilty of this, that a lot of Texans I know, they're in Houston most of the year, and then they all get on their jets and they go to Aspen and they hang around with exactly the same people. They're just in a different place. And I don't get that. I don't know why you bother to do that. I mean, yeah, it's cooler in Aspen. And, and Aspen, I'm not saying that's a bad place, but I think it's really fun for me to have Texas friends and, and to do what you do in Texas in the wintertime and then come up here to New England and summertime and be around some people that are, you know, see the world differently and are interested in different things. And for me, it makes the world interesting. There's a photo in there of the elder president Bush yes. who, who also mm-hmm. has connections in both new England and South Texas. That's correct. Yeah. He was on campaign trail and he was in that picture was taken in Hebronville, Texas, which is population about 4,000. He, he was rallying there and I was, I was there and, and took the picture and, and uh, I think it's kind of cool. I like it. He's he's really my only celebrity in the in the whole in the whole book. Other than there's a few people that think they're celebrities. But. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got to work out a deal with your neighbor, Miss Swift. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> it's been great getting to know you a little bit over the last month as we've negotiated this uh, negotiated as we as we worked yeah. out the logistics of this interview. And I've really yes. enjoyed your work. The book, the collection of photographs, is called These Americans by Will Vote, the introduction by Mr. Jay McInerney. Where can people find out more about you and your work? Uh, you can go to my website that is willvote.com, believe it or not. There's links to, to the book, to buy the book and, and to other articles. My Instagram is, is wiltingflower. Don't, I could tell you the story how that came about. My, my daughter and her friends uh, decided to change my Instagram to that about when they were teenagers. <laughs> and they just got on there and there's all of a sudden, dad, we don't like your Instagram. We're going to, we're going to make you wilting. So it's, it's sort of a play on will tea, will tea flower, I guess. But anyway, I've stuck with it. So there you go. It's willvote.com and vote is V O G T. We will put a link to that in the show notes. Will, thanks so much for your work and for your time. Paul, thank you. And I, I hope to come see you work sometime. I'd like to see you do your magic. And again, I love your podcast is, is, is really interesting. And thank you for having me on.